0: With guest host, Marissa Lennox.
1: Good afternoon. Thank you for being with us today. I am Marissa Lennox, and for Libby's Nimer this week, she's back on Monday. Our top story is one that hasn't made enough headlines, in my opinion. The federal government is planning to effectively reduce fertilizer use by Canada's farmers. If you haven't heard this story, here's what they're trying to do. They're looking to impose a requirement to reduce nitrous oxide emissions, which is a component of fertilizer by 30%, saying it's a greenhouse gas and is contributing to climate change. But the farmers say that's not possible without reducing fertilizer use. A 30% reduction in emissions from fertilizer means a 30% reduction in fertilizer use. So why does all this matter? Because targeting fertilizer use will have a direct impact on production. It risks risks decreasing their output and in turn will drive up the price of food, not to mention the potential for lost revenue for our farmers. So at a time when inflation on food prices is driving people to dollar stores, does it make sense to choke our supply before there is, at the very least, a reduction in demand? or a reduction in inflation, or at all. The numbers to call, 416 toll-free 740 Let's bring in Ryan Koslag, Executive Director of Ontario Bean Growers, and Peggy Breckfeld, President of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. Welcome to you both. Oh. For me. First of all, Ryan, am I correct that a 30% reduction in emissions from fertilizer would mean a 30% reduction in fertilizer use? Did I, did I characterize that right?
2: Um, I think some of that is still yet to be determined, and certainly that's some of the conversation that we would like to have with the government. Um, in part, I think what we wanted to bring forward, too, is that there's already a, currently a 35% tariff on fertilizer coming from Russia, which adds to the cost mm-hmm. of producing food in Ontario.
1: It hasn't been a good year for farmers, that's for sure. But Ryan, I take it you don't want the government to move forward with this. Why not?
2: Yeah, I think really what we always look at is having incentives for farmers to participate in new programs. You know, we already know that the foreign for our nutrient stewardship uh, program is providing some really great results on how to further improve the efficiencies, even though we already believe that our farmers are doing an excellent job as it is already. This is one of the highest costs of their inputs. And so they're already very precise on how they're applying it. But there are incentives for uh, getting more farmers to participate in this type of a farming practice that we believe that the government should focus more attention on, as opposed to putting down a mandate.
1: Okay, Peggy, and what's your position on this? So,
3: certainly in agreement with Ryan that there's always a desire to see more incentives. And it's been a really tough year um, between the uh, fertilizer tariffs that have really increased costs for farmers, and, uh, simply a lot of other things such as inflation that affects even us at the field and in our, on our farms. So, uh, certainly agree that the desire to, uh, continue to improve the environment. I think farmers and government are in agreement on that. It's just how we get there and how we measure it. Uh, I, I do believe that there's, a fact that if we decrease fertilizer, we will see a decrease in production. And in the current geopolitical situation, is that really uh, the right answer with, uh, we see challenges in the Ukraine, we see poor pressures on farmers in Europe, including Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we move forward? And I think to myself, Canada has this great opportunity to continue to uh, produce food. And reduce emissions per production, which we've been doing for years. Um, On my own dairy farm, we saw at one time I milked 17 litres of cow. Now I do over 30 litres of cow per day. And that is because we, we know we have better science and better knowledge. But it's the same amount of emissions per cow. Um, I think there's some ways
1: to do some measuring that will make a difference. Actually, a little bit later in the show, I'm going to be talking to an engineer a little bit about that. But, Ryan, just going back to you, what would a policy like this mean for your bottom line and for your output? Yeah,
2: like we know that uh, edible beans are a user of nitrogen fertilizer. And certainly, I don't think that... uh, We'll have a positive end result if there is actually a reduction of, say, 30% of the nitrogen used. Um, You know, but yeah, I think as you guys had mentioned as well, measuring and understanding how exactly this could be effectively implemented is still a huge question mark for our industry. You know we're not 100% sure on um, how exactly this is going to be understood and how farmers would be able be able to implement a practice that would work well for them. Um, but yeah, we know that we're never going to be able to eliminate fertilizer at this point with our crop, and uh, we have a, an excellent product for which we ship around the world. And nearly 90% of what we grow goes to other countries, uh, including Europe and uh, and Asia. And so certainly want to see that we continue to uh, meet those market demands, but. At the same time, too, uh, what we see is if there's going to be a reduction, it could be an increase in cost. And we already see our product as being uh, high quality, which also follows a bit of a higher price. So we're competing with every other country that's out there that might not be implementing the same types of policies. But at the same time, a, gr- a person that visits the grocery store and they sees they see that the price is uh, lower from a different location. I think this is always a concern for us that we continue to be competitive on a price basis as well.
1: Well, that's true. And, you know, Peggy, at the moment we're seeing relentless upward pressure on food prices. Yes. Is the world looking to Canada to increase production, to be a solution to global food shortages? There are very few countries around this world
3: that actually export more food than they need. Um, and so Canada has an opportunity to um, grow more food. Right now, we see that in particular as we think of the Ukraine with the wheat production and um, sunflower oil. There's some opportunities there. Um, just in general, we, we we do. We Ryan's talking about beans. Uh, I would say fruit and vegetables, pork, beef. There's so many products that Canada is one of the global players and Um, certainly we are known as a nation for quality and uh, great taste.
1: Let's get to our phone lines. Scott in Acton has a comment. Scott, you're live on the air. Go ahead.
4: Yes, hi. Um, I come from a, a
5: family of farmers, and we
4: currently actively farm just outside of Acton. And I think that the reduction of fertilizer will really cripple how we do things, and, well, people will eventually starve. So... And with farming being the backbone industry of any society, I think we need more support rather than taking away what we have.
1: Scott, do you worry such a policy could force you to close your farm?
4: Yes, it it would heavily affect it. As you've mentioned earlier, that um, it would reduce yield and then in turn reduce profits. And we're already paying high prices for fertilizer.
1: All right, Scott, thank you for for your call. Ryan, do you have any comment there? Yeah, like I
2: think that, uh, you know, it raises the question when I, when I think of the costs associated with uh, implementing a tariff, um, you know, we've seen the government already, uh, change their policy with regards to, uh, companies in Germany using, uh, Russian technology. I think that prioritizing agriculture and the production of food should be something that our government continues to pursue and examine because, yeah, this is a backbone type of, a, uh, an economy. Uh, agriculture has always been one of the biggest contributors to our GDP. And so it should be highly valued and it should get some exemptions and it should get some special treatment, I think, when uh, we take a look at this stuff.
1: Have either of you spoken with people in government about this? Have you been invited to the table as major stakeholders? Peggy, I'll start with you.
3: Yeah, certainly provincially and federally. We've had conversations with um, MPPs and MPs, including the ministers of agriculture at both le- levels.
1: Um, and do you get the sense they're, that they're that they're listening to your concerns here? <laughs> you know what I, I think they,
3: there's a certain background mandates and pressures that they want to see. I think society is pushing everyone to be more concerned, more and more concerned about the environment, and we acknowledge that. Even farmers, we we have a desire to continue to get better. Um, Ryan mentioned before our program, it's just one example of ways that we are getting better and better. So it is about using fertilizer at the right rate, at the right place, at the right time, and using the right products. And and we have a bit of a certification program for them. And I think to myself that that drive is the same. The question is, how do you get there? And that conversation continues Mm -hmm. both with uh, Ontario Federation of Agriculture and other major partners, including commodities like Ryan is representing.
1: Ryan, let's talk about the tariffs imposed on fertilizer. Uh, You mentioned it earlier, they did see a big spike in price because of the... Um, the tariff that was imposed on them. A lot of products from Russia w- 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 saw a tariff imposed on them, 2 the tune of 35%, but fertilizer was one of them, and I think many don't realize that Russia produces the majority of fertilizer. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Yeah, On the eastern side of Canada, we do see that we have a lot of import of Russian nitrogen fertilizer, and that is uh, one of the highest-used fertilizers in our growing regions, uh, and specifically for beans and canola. Um, yeah, what we see or what we would recommend is that the government takes a look at, you know, the tariffs and are they actually, you know, achieving what they thought that they might be achieving. Certainly, we're seeing that it's adding additional costs to our farmers, which I don't think is probably something that they would really like to see during an inflationary period of, you know, grocery store prices increasing. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, too, we know the other G7 nations that are also members of NATO that are not implementing the same type of tariffs. So again, when I, like I mentioned, we have to compete with these other countries uh, for price, and we see that our government is imposing a tariff and others are not. So uh, it really makes us question.
1: And just for the listener, I mean, you, you were already hit with this cost uh, that you were simply forced to absorb. And then is it, is it such that then that cost gets passed down to the consumer?
2: No, we always believe that, uh, uh, you know, that we are price takers. A lot of these costs don't get transferred down. We see the farmer's share of the food dollar decreasing all the time. And, uh, yeah, certainly we have questions with regards when the tariffs are being applied because this is even applying to fertilizer that was purchased prior to the war even taking place. And uh, we've communicated to the government that if they don't want to remove a tariff for any future purchases, we should at least remove those tariffs that were applied to uh, purchases made prior to the war taking.
1: Peggy, would you like to see the tariffs lift lifted? rather? I think all farmers would love to see the tariffs lift.
3: The cost on production um, is significantly increased with the tariff. Um, I, I think the way forward is to find a way to get that tariff back I can understand how the government wants to put pressure on Russia. It's part of a bigger picture, Um, but it does. It affects food security. It affects agriculture, which is one of our basic um, human needs: is food. If you ate today, a farmer grew it, and we need to see more often.
1: Um, that priority on some of our basic needs. Can you give me a sense, Ryan, of how fertilizer works? How do you know how much fertilizer you need? And are there cases where farmers use too much fertilizer?
2: Yeah, so I think first off, we should understand that a lot of farmers um, have a previous background of working in their industry for a very long time. And with that comes a partnership that they've associated with uh, their, their, um, their input supplier. They work with agronomists. They test the soil. Uh, They work with universities, they work with other organizations, and they work with other farmers. And so, like I mentioned, fertilizer is one of the highest input costs of growing crops. They've always wanted to make sure that they're applying this at the most cost-effective, yet producing the highest yields that they can possibly produce. So, um, you know, certainly we think that uh, there's room for improvement at all times, and this uh, 4R program is is, uh, going to help farmers get even more efficient, but... Uh, seeing government help our farmers invest in, you know, new technologies or uh, new programs or incentivize these types of uh, stewardship. Uh, type programs, I think is something that our farmers would be happy to see as opposed to uh, the mandates. Mm -hmm. And I should also mention, too, even with these tariffs being applied, we would also love to see the government invest in uh, nitrogen production facilities in in Ontario or Eastern Canada, because we can do that all here. We just need some help and some assistance from government. This is a long-term game. Building those types of factories are, are going to be an investment for the future, because we're always going to need fertilizer. We'll never eliminate it completely.
1: We're seeing similar protests. Well, it's likely we'll see some protests here if the government does move forward. And we are seeing protests in Europe. Dutch farmers have taken to the streets to protest. A policy that looks not too dissimilar from what the Liberal government has proposed. In this case, the government is manding mandating a fifty percent reduction in fertilizer use. So, if this goes forward, Peggy, do you think that farmers here will take similar action?
3: The situation in in Holland is um, it has a lot of lessons in it. Um, it talks a lot about the fact that if we continue to um push harder and harder on farmers to absorb the costs and the responsibilities um, by themselves without uh financial compensation uh for taking care of the environment all by ourselves uh that that will uh probably lead us to eventually there will be a breaking point and those hit their breaking points um, nitrous oxide does not only come from farms it also comes from the cars you drive, from the airports, mm-hmm. from the construction industry, such as concrete. And really, at in, in Holland, they're asking farmers to bear the whole brunt of it. So lots of lessons to learn. I think that uh, Canadian farmers haven't had the same lead-up to to the current situation as what the Dutch are. But I will say emotions are rising high. And I acknowledge that farmers are... Feeling the, the pressure, you, you, your caller talked about it being crippling, mm. and I think that is significant. The dollars, the margins in farming, are are not so big that we could absorb a 50% reduction in our production. <laughs>
1: Meanwhile, Ryan Rex Murphy had a story in the National Post if this is what the headline read. If Dutch farmers protest, if the Dutch farmer protest was happening here, it would be an emergency. Leaders would be arrested and their tractors seized. Do you worry about that?
2: Um, no. I, I think that that might be a bit of a sensationalized uh uh headline. You know, I th- I think that we do see um a very level-headed approach and wanting to have these conversations at the forefront. You know, our farmers uh, who produce edible beans are always taking a look at what's happening in Europe, uh, mainly because that is our end consumer at the same time. So the green policies that they've been implementing there, we've been taking a look at, and sometimes that even affects our practices in Ontario, not because it's been mandated to us by... Uh, government, but simply we're trying to continue to meet the consumer's demand. So we are aware of what's going on over there, but uh, um, we'll continue to, I think, support our farmers
1: uh, in Netherlands. Before I let you both go, Ted from Bramley has a question. Ted, you're live on the air. Go ahead.
5: Hi there. Yes. Uh, If they're serious about greenhouse gases, which they're not, they banned CFCs and replaced them with greenhouse gas. But if they're serious about greenhouse gases, they should have banned drive through restaurants years ago. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Look at Tim Hortons. I hear some laughter. Is that you, Ryan? Peggy?
3: No, that would be me. (laughs) Um, I will will put it this way. We all have a desire to continue to improve air quality, water quality, soils we want to protect. Um, It doesn't matter whether you live in the city or in the country. I think that uh, that requires continued dialogue of how to do it best. And Ryan's right. For organizations like ours, the goal is to go there and to continue to converse with government about what's realistic of how we can continue to reduce nitrous oxide emissions, but also have a thriving and healthy far, uh, farm community and continue to provide food for Ontario, Canada, and the world.
1: All right. Thank you, Ted, for your call. And uh, Ryan Kosleg, Executive Director of Ontario Bean Growers, and Peggy Breckfeld, President of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. Thank you both for your time. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. I'd like to bring in Chris Grossman. He's an engineer specializing in emissions management and measurement. He is also the Chief Technology Officer at Quantum Fleet. Chris, you know a thing or two about this situation. Although this proposed policy is new... Uh, the movement toward using less fertilizer has been worked on for a while due to the pressures of creating more food without the use of additional fertilizer, obviously because of the cost. So from your perspective, how do you assess what's going on here?
6: Yeah, good afternoon and thank you for the time. Yes, the the concept of trying to reduce the use of fertilization in farming, uh, both domestically in Canada and globally, is, is something that we've been focused on for several years. The The driver of that focus has largely been centered around the fact that farmers have gone through a tremendous amount of pressure as the cost of fertilizer has gone from $1,200 per ton up to $3,600 per ton over the last 12 months. Certainly, the introduction of legislation that reduces the use of fertilization puts an increased pressure on the necessity to be as efficient as possible with the use of fertilizer. And you know it's certainly a concern not just to Canadian farmers, global farmers, but really should be a concern to the global population, because it's always difficult when policies that aim to addressing the global climate challenge come into conflict with the global food crisis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Canadian farmers produce, you know, the fifth largest export globally of agricultural products, and Canadian farmers feed not just Canadians, but export products over 200 different countries. And so what our company focuses on it's helping comply with the philosophy of reducing emissions without sacrificing the yield as the result of the use of the fertilizer itself. And so, you know, we really try to focus on the concept of introducing technology that gives farmers the input required to be able to naturally reduce their use of fertilizer without compromising yield because the, the improper reduction of fertilizer where, you know, uh soil quality can be detrimentally affected. Can actually have a negative impact on the environment. And so, ironically, the policies that introduce the use of less fertilizer, which is targeted to have an improvement on the environment, could actually negatively affect the environment. And so, this needs to be done in a, in a way where data and um, intelligence is used as the as a primary driver for how fertilizer. Um, is used on, on these on these crops.
1: Chris, that's really interesting. Go into that a little bit more. How would reducing fertilizer usage have a negative impact on the environment?
6: Yeah, so the, you know, what we, we don't necessarily always put into context is the pressure that's been put on the farmers to increase the yield of their crops over the same area of land. So if we take a, a certain number of hectares of farmland, you know, due to global uh, food shortages and food insecurity globally, um, the Canadian farmers have been asked to increase the yield of their land. The only way to increase that yield is to make the soil itself able to grow more crops, and the only way to do that is through the use of fertilizers, which increases the amount of soil-based nitrogen, which serves as the food for those 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 crops. If we were to choke off that supply of food, um, what happens is those plants become uh, become unhealthy, and unhealthy plants start to emit. CO2 back into the environment, um, which ironically, again, hurts the environment by introducing CO2 at unhealthy amounts, which, you know, through the use of, although you're reducing the nitrous oxide that's put in the environment, you're introducing CO2 to the environment. So again, it's, it's really important to have this healthy balance mm. of reducing fertilizer in an intelligent way that it doesn't hurt the yield. Thus, we achieve both targets, which is to reduce emissions, but at the same time, not compromise the food supply. Because you know one of the things that we feel very strongly about at, at Quantum Instruments is that the goal of reducing emissions cannot come at the expense of the food supply. Because globally, anytime we've had any type of food insecurity, there becomes this initial reaction that we're starting to see where social unrest is, is directly correlated with food insecurity. And so the yield of the farms has to be put at, at the top of the list of things that we prioritize. And we believe at Quantum Instruments that technology can aid in those decisions to use the proper amount of fertilization at the proper time.
1: So, let me just first ask: Do farmers overuse fertilizer? Is there an overuse of it in farming?
6: So it's not that I, I wouldn't categorize it as an overuse, but um, the the challenge is that the amount of fertilizer that you use changes on a day to day basis. So, what's needed from a you know for the crop on one day may be very different than what's needed on another day. And so, what farmers do is they they calibrate their amount of fertilizer for what's needed for the, the their land at any given time. However, due to weather conditions, temperature, the amount of ammonia that's being produced by the land, you know, there there's opportunity on certain days, and in what the University of Minnesota categorizes as hotspots, where you can actually dramatically reduce the use of fertilization in certain areas of your farm um, that. It does not have a negative effect on the the yield, but does allow you to have a net reduction in overall fertilization. So uh, a study that's been done in the United States to, to look at some of the farms that have been targeted by the University of Minnesota analyzed that from 1980 to 2010, there was no increase in the amount of fertilization that was used on these targeted farms, yet the yield was able to increase 60%. And what that showed was that there doesn't necessarily need to be a correlation with the amount of fertilizer that's used and the amount of product that's created, but there has to be data that's been able to be given to the farmers in real time and ideally directly to the fertilization machines, so that they can understand the amount of fertilizer needed each day. So it's it's not just that too much fertilizer is used overall. It's the concept that there's certain hotspots and certain times of the year that less fertilizer can be used, and that's not always obvious, um, just given the, the data that's being that's available to the farmers today.
1: I'm coming up against a break, Chris, but just in layman's terms, because you're a little bit technical for me, in layman's terms, how does technology come in then to be the antidote, so to speak?
6: Yeah, the the very transparent way of, of understanding it is, is that if you understand more about the the air that's coming out of the soil, you can decide how much fertilizer is needed. And farmers, more than anyone, want to use less fertilizer because fertilizer has a tremendous cost. Give the farmers the way to use less fertilizer. They will and will achieve the goals of reducing emissions and not compromising global food supply.
1: And it sounds like a win-win for the government, too. It certainly is. (laughs) Chris Grossman, an engineer specializing in emissions measurement and management, also chief technology officer at Quantum Fleet. Thank you for your time, Chris. Thank you. When we come back, the premier has listed his house again, this time for a lot less. We'll tell you those details next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox.
1: Welcome back. I am Marissa Lennox in for Libby's Nimer. This week, she's back on Monday for some well-deserved vacation. In the meantime, Premier Doug Ford's house is up for sale again. Only this time, it's listed for $400,000 less. This comes on the heels of what many are calling a historic correction in the market, or what will be, that could see sales drop 42%. So what does it mean for you, whether you're a homeowner, a renter, a landlord, what have you? But first, the numbers to call. 416-3600740, 416 360 toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's bring in my next guest, Steve Jelnick, Toronto Real Estate Agent with Chestnut Park Real Estate. Steve, it's good to have you.
4: Hi, Marissa. Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
1: As regards the Premier's house, is this a case where it was just listed too high to begin with, or might there have been a time a couple months ago, perhaps, where his house could have sold for 400000 higher? And this is really just a family falling victim to the cooling real estate market.
4: I, I think uh, I think it's probably the latter option. I mean, I, we've definitely seen the market change over the last few months, uh, but we also saw it change the reverse way from January, or I should say December two thousand twenty one, until that February and March uh, euphoria period that we saw in two thousand twenty two. So the market comes and goes, and it goes in cycles. Uh, it's a very cyclical. Um, market in general in terms of, uh, spring market is always very busy. Summer is quiet. People are off on vacations. Then you get to, uh, the fall and things pick up once again. This is a little bit different, um, considering that we had, you know, some of the lowest interest rates historically ever. Um, and now they are increasing rapidly. So that's, that obviously puts a lot of pressure on buyers. But, uh, in terms of the house specifically, I think that, uh it's a fantastic property um and there are buyers still out there for you know kind of that renovated uh, nice family turnkey house so I, I think every house finds its value within the market but timing uh changes that value um from one season to the next never mind one interest rate uh policy from the bank of canada to what we're seeing now which is uh very quick increases.
1: It's a nice house. I've seen the photos. It's a little pricey, but uh, it's up there. I think it's over $3 million. I, I, Steve, are you among those who say we needed this correction? It's a good thing.
4: Well, I mean, it's, what we need is stability in the housing market. I, I mean, if you're a buyer in today's market, it's not as though things got cheaper. You know, with it, fixed interest rates have almost tripled in the last year. So even if values come down significantly, you're still almost paying more for your month-to-month costs as a uh, as a primary resident in your property. So there's not really a win in this situation unless you're buying your property in cash. And who has the money to do that? So it's not as though things are getting much better. It's almost as though it's just um, a different sort of pressure on the market, if that makes sense.
1: Does it depend on where you live? So, for example, is there a, a type of property exempt from this cooling in the market, say large parcels of land versus a subdivision home? What say you?
4: Well, I, I, don't, I don't want to speak out of my experience uh, realm. I mean, I, I'm pretty focused in the city of Toronto, uh, Tobacco, North York, these kind of areas, um, East York. So I, I'm not too educated on the rural properties such as farms and such. I know farms have kind of had their own time to shine with the, uh, with the food um, shortage issues that we might be facing in the future. So everything...
1: Well, they were just hit by increases in the price of fertilizer, but I hear you. Go ahead.
4: Totally. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, um, I, I would say that um, from my perspective and what, what I can speak to from my experience, I think that um, areas with, you know, strong employment, um, good transit, safe communities are obviously holding up better. Um, But that said, you know, areas such as Oshawa or if you go west to Waterloo saw saw significant price increases that, um, that they've never really seen before. Whereas in the city of Toronto, it's always kind of been a really aggressive market. So I would say that Toronto is probably holding up better in this market correction than other areas in the GTA, uh, just simply because the pace has been one that's been this pace almost for six, seven years now, since 2014, when things really took off. So I'm not seeing the type of price corrections in the city of Toronto and in prime neighborhoods as I am. Um, or towards one of the region, or Barrie, or Oshawa.
1: Give me some numbers in the GTA, and you can speak specific to Toronto if you'd like, but to what extent has that market cooled? I've seen some numbers thrown around 20%, 40%. What is it?
4: Well, it's a great question, right? It's hard to paint everything with one brush. Um, I can see that on average, I'm, I'm seeing uh, prices for properties down about 10 to 15%. From those February and March highs, um, but what, but a, a difficult thing to comprehend is that prices went up about ten percent from January until March, and it was it, it's crazy when prices increased that quickly. Mm. Um, and I think a part of it was the uh, low interest rates, but also the fact that there wasn't any homes on the market because we had the uh, the um, Omicron wave, and it made it difficult for people to list their properties safely and effectively. So if you wanted to sell during that period. You actually had to move out of your house to an Airbnb or a hotel to have the wave of buyers through that were in the marketplace. So it it, it almost seemed to me like it was an artificial inventory constraint, which has obviously alleviated itself with um, the reopening of our communities, um, interest rates increasing, and people on vacation.
1: That's so interesting. I hadn't even considered that. But of course, supply and demand. I'm talking to Steve Jelnick, Toronto real estate agent with Chestnut Park Real Estate. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. Do you have a question for Steve about your piece of property? In the meantime, Steve, how much of this is being driven by inflation and rising interest rates, that cooling of the market, I mean, or are there other factors at play?
4: Well, I think it's also um, back to the, uh, to the seasonal aspects as well. Um, I think a lot of people are on vacation right now. And if they're not, maybe their agent is. So you, you add on this knee-jerk reaction in the marketplace with interest rates tripling over the last six months. I mean, you could get a five-year fixed interest rate for 1.5% um, in 2021. Now it's 5.5%. Yeah. So that that's a big increase. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's, Overall, um, I'm expecting the fall to become a little bit more busy because uh, people are just simply trying to enjoy themselves after uh, what well, we've had a, a rough couple of years, the COVID and Omicron waves.
1: Well, that would be a big motivating factor for someone to list their home if their interest rate went from 1.5 to 5.5. It seems like it's not a good time to sell. I suppose it's all re- relative, though, because if you're selling at a loss, you're likely to buy at a good price, too.
4: Totally. If you're making a, a transition within the same market, it's always relative. The people who really paid the price, um, who are the ones that got caught on the wrong side of the change in the market, so they competed against ten people to purchase their property in March of 2022, and then they went to list it in May, or you know, similar timelines when it was really hot, they bought, and then when they, it was cooled off, they were selling. Those are the people that really got caught in the transition of the market. And it's a really sad thing that happens. But nobody has a crystal ball Um, and people have to move and uh, people have to, you know, go on with their life plans no matter what's happening in the real estate market.
1: And it's not all negative. I mean, isn't the market up a big uh, 40 percent or something pre-pandemic? Homeowners are still farther ahead than they were two years ago, are they not?
4: Totally. Yeah. And and the, the really hard thing to swallow is for first time buyers because they're, uh, they're trying to get into the market. And now everybody, you know, the, 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 the common thread in the market is that we're in a correction. But the reality for buyers looking to get into the market is that they're paying more in interest rates. Your purchase price has come down, but your interest rate, your qualification has become very difficult uh, to not only qualify for, but to also carry the mortgage month to month. So they're the ones that are really facing the pain in the marketplace because their pre-approvals are running out and new interest rates are coming in. And I don't believe the Bank of Canada is done with their interest rate hikes. So I think that there's going to be further pain to be felt for Yikes. people trying to get into the market. Now, the min- just for context, I, yeah. sorry to jump in, um, I do believe that prices are about back at um, summer of 2021, in my view if that helps provide any context Mm -hmm. on where the market is.
1: The majority of boomers own their homes. It's a staggering percentage. I think it's like 75% own and over 60% without a mortgage. Don't quote me, but the numbers are bigger, much larger than, say, for the millennial generation, for sure. So for them, this is their nest egg. What advice do you give them?
4: I mean, I see it often where um, people are are living in their homes, you know, they're they're creating memories with their families, they're taking care of the property, but I don't think people are really future-proofing themselves within their homes. It's very difficult to make moves in the market from one property to the next. So if you can plan how to almost age in place as a uh, as an option in your life, you know, to get, look into what a stair lift costs, um, you know, maybe get a quote for what a ramp would cost in the front of the house. I, I think that taking steps to make yourself comfortable in place is a good move because it's getting more and more challenging to make moves within the market. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's going to further restrain our inventory supply as a real estate agent. So it's not a good thing for the market, but I think people do need to take into consideration their own plans and plan ahead. Because the worst thing that I see is when I go into a property and... Um, the owners are seniors and they do not even use the upstairs of the house. The bedroom is on the main floor. It's not a very big house and the upstairs kind of just goes to waste because they can't use the stairs anymore. So I think if people can kind of plan, Accordingly, to not find themselves in those situations down the road in life, they're probably going to be in a really good spot.
1: Are you finding a lot of people refinancing to make ends meet or using their property as an asset or, you know, engaging in this sort of reverse mortgage process just, you know, to do things like that, to, um, uh, you know, change their house so that it's, you know, better for their needs and also to just keep their head above water?
4: Yeah, and I think that with cheap liquidity, you, you know, with uh interest rates so low, it made sense to access capital if you had equity in your property. Now that we're at 5.5% on a five-year fixed mortgage, it's more painful. Um Reverse mortgages, I haven't had any any personal experience with them. I know that there is an attractive element for people who do need the capital that wouldn't be able to qualify for some sort of a home equity line of credit. It's much more pricey um but it, it, you know if you have all this equity in your property you have to actually qualify to be able to pull it out otherwise it's just stuck in the house mm-hmm. um because you need to service that debt so the bank needs you to to know that you're going to be able to repay that debt obviously the house is uh is the secure asset which is in place in case you don't but you still have to qualify so it is challenging for people to have the funds to get the help that they need in terms of support um when they're aging in place, plus house accommodating to uh, to their current situation? So, it, the the, the I, I think the answer to your question um, is I think that people are doing it much less now, with the fact that interest rates have increased so much over a short period of time.
1: Okay, last question: What happens by the end of the year? How does this play out for homeowners?
4: Well, I think I think we're all at the whim of the Bank of Canada. I think if uh, in, if inflation keeps going up. Uh, Bank of Canada has to keep raising interest rates. Interest rates impact uh, house values. Inflation also impacts house values with the cost of materials to renovate your property. Um, so we're in a bit of a, a tough situation right now. I, I, I think the whole economy, because we're trying to stamp on inflation by raising interest rates. And unfortunately, the the, um, the inflation readings keep coming in higher. So that's why the Bank of Canada took that action of the full one percent rate hike Um, last announcement uh, because they're trying to stamp it out. But we're in a bit of a messy middle Mm. between interest rates and inflation right now. And the housing market is also in that messy middle. So Mm. I think by the end of the year, I think that we do start to see a bit more activity in the fall. Uh, Seasonally, September to November are very busy periods. And I think that we're going to find a new normal.
1: Actually, Steve, one more question, because I'd be remiss to not ask. What about renters? What are they seeing right now?
4: Oof, it's not good. Um, it's, it's very painful in the rental market. I mean, I had, uh, had an apartment listed for rent and we had probably 13 offers in a span of five days. Um, and we rented for about 30% more than we rented it for in 2020, um, November of 2020, the fall. So that, that should provide a bit of perspective. It was a, a good location it was it was a nice you know one uh bedroom plus an office condo no parking no locker just in a good location um and i think that we are seeing a return to the city in some degrees um a lot of students uh, a lot of a lot of medical workers uh, a lot of people coming back uh, to plant roots in toronto again with uh, with the city reopening so the rental market is, is not great, and that's kind of the new housing crisis, this rental accommodations, while the, while the resale market takes, uh, takes time out.
1: All right, interesting time. Steve Jelnick, thank you for your time.
4: My pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: When we come back, an update on the Rogers fiasco. That's next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox.
1: Welcome back. I am Marissa Lennox. And for Libby this week, good to have you with us. As Ottawa continues to investigate the network outage at Rogers and Execs face questions from the House of Commons Industries Committee, the company delayed its deadline to finalize a merger with competitor Shaw until the end of the year. Meanwhile, the company is saying that it will spend as much as $150 million – it sounds like a lot, but is it – on compensation to its customers and is promising to invest billions towards strengthening the resiliency of its networks. Is all of this enough? To join the conversation, you can call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's welcome Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Welcome to the show. Good to have you.
5: Great great to be here, Marissa. Thanks for having me.
1: So first of all, a delay in the deadline to finalize the merger is likely in the best interest of Rogers, given all the pushback they'd faced of late, do you think?
5: Yeah, I think what they're trying to do is put some some daylight between all the controversy that's happening now and the, the hit to their brand that they're experiencing because of the July 8 outage. Uh, and uh, and when this deal closes, they're essentially hoping that by the time they get to the end of the year, the deadline was originally the end of July, that uh, most of what we're seeing now will have slipped into history, that, that the anti-Rogers sentiment that you're seeing across the country, both from Canadian citizens, businesses, as well as government. Uh, will have eased off a little bit in an opposition to the deal, concerns over lack of competition and all of that that uh, things will soften a little bit. They're trying to buy themselves time, uh, which is pretty much all they can do at this point because they really have uh, they find themselves in quite the mess.
1: Well, it's not just public sentiment you mentioned the government, but the competition bureau i mean they've they've been a big factor in in pushback, no?
5: Very much so. <clears throat> competition Bureau has been against this almost from day one. They've uh, <clears throat> questioned uh, Rogers' uh, you know, contention that uh, competition would not be compromised by this takeover. When, in fact, every other indicator that we have, I've been covering this industry for the better part of 15-plus years. Um, there is no way that you can say that with a straight face, <laughs> that you know, c- you know competition will not be affected by this, that Canadians won't have less choice once Shaw is essentially wiped off the map. So, um, you know, perhaps they're hoping that they, they can give themselves more time to come up with a, a better argument that people will actually believe. Um, but from the perspective of where Canada's telecom industry needs to be in order to uh, prevent outages like the one we've seen and also give Canadians more choice, uh, reduce prices, allow uh, 5G investment to continue... Um, you know the the Shaw deal uh, will point us in the exact opposite direction, and the Competition Bureau is right to be putting that pressure on Rogers and essentially say, you know, you've got to convince us otherwise before we give this deal the green light.
1: If you had to guess, will the merger go through?
5: Um, you know, it's it's I, I, I I've I've if you had asked me this about three months ago, I probably would have said, yeah, you know, Competition Bureau is going to make a whole lot of noise. CRTC is going to, you know. Say a few provocative things, but in the end, they're going to allow it to go through. They'll rubber stamp it, just like they have every other conglomeration-focused into um, a deal in the past. Um, they've essentially presided over a nonstop, uh, you know, growth pattern. Fewer players, larger players, less choice uh, over the last twenty years in the Canadian telecom industry. So why should they change now? Um, but I really do think that the, this latest outage is—I I see it as a watershed event. I think it's changed sentiment. Among a lot of people, I think uh, it's finally forced us to realize that uh, our very health and safety is being put at risk by this trend, um, and it needs to be addressed. And so I think now, uh, I think there's a very real chance of this deal not going through, and of uh, you know, the Competition Bureau, the CRTC, Industry Canada uh, finally putting their feet down and essentially saying, you know what, the, the old way of doing things in Canadian telecom needs to change. And it's going to start changing now. Rogers, find a better way.
1: If this deal does go through, explain to our listeners what that would mean, what that would look like.
5: Uh, essentially, if you're a Shaw uh, customer, uh, you know you would now be subject to you know Rogers' uh, choice in Western Canada, and of course Shaw focused in Western Canada. It essentially means that Western Canadians will have one less choice, and there's also. Um, uh, less what I like to call daylight for any other smaller regional players to, uh, to, to, to build a business. So if you're a smaller player, uh, what you do is you, you build wholesale agreements or you, you strike wholesale agreements with major national carriers, uh, hop onto their networks, pay them for the privilege of doing so, and then resell those services, uh, on top of that infrastructure to your customers. Well, now, you know, there is one less choice there. And so if you're a Shaw customer, Um, You have one less place to go, uh, and if you're any other customer, this doesn't just affect them, it affects everyone else. There is now one major player removed from the Canadian telecom landscape, um, and it means less choice, fewer options, less incentive for Rogers to toe the line in terms of how much those services cost you and what you get back in return. Um, so that value equation always goes down when a major player is removed from the market. Um, so it'll affect Western Canada disproportionately because Shaw has always been a Western Canada focused uh, player. But let's be clear, this is a coast to coast to coast impact and it's bad news for all of us.
1: Do you have a sense of how many millions of customers are with Shaw?
5: Uh, I'm not sure. I, 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 I'll i have to double check out.
1: It's in I the millions though. Million,
5: but yeah, it's, they're certainly small, you know, obviously, you know, Rogers and Bell are both in you know, 10 million plus. Um, but, you know, the thing here is we sort of learned from the outage is that, um, you don't have to be a customer of that, uh, of that carrier in order to be affected by changes to that carrier. So in this case, uh, even if you're not a Rogers customer, it's going to hurt you regardless, um, wherever you go. And so it changes the landscape for everybody who seeks, uh, wireless, as well as uh, te- telephony, as well as internet service across the country, and we've seen this general trend. Today, we're talking about Rogers and Shaw, but truth of the matter is, every single proposed deal uh, on the on the books now, as well as every deal that's happened over the past 15 to 20 years, has moved Canadians away from uh, the the kind of situation where if they don't like what they're getting from their current uh, current carrier they can go across the street and get a better deal, well, there's no one across the street anymore. And a Rogers and Shaw hookup would reduce what that choice or that decision set by one.
1: I lived in the U.S. for a period of time, and I can tell you my phone bill in the U.S. was a third of what I pay here in Canada. Okay, that's crazy. Okay, Bill in Toronto.
5: That, that, that always makes me cry. Right? But, but you know, that there are some economic reasons. Canada is a, is a l- larger country and about one-tenth of population so the economics of delivering services across those populations is necessarily more difficult in Canada, but certainly that doesn't explain the, the difference. There are other factors in play. We could still be doing better.
1: Bill in Toronto has a comment. Bill, you're live on the air, go ahead.
5: Yeah, your guest is right. It's called economy of scale. <clears throat> if, they, if you put a cable in the, mile, uh, in the ground, they have access to 10 times the customers on that cable, so obviously economy of scale comes into play. But I took a look at the competition thing, and I thought, how many actual uh, carriers are there in the state? And if you look at it, there's really four major ones, maybe five major carriers. And they do have 10 times the population we've got. So we've got three carriers, and and they've got five. Really, how much more competition is there in the state? The reason their phones and everything are cheaper, it's because of economy of scale. You know, they're revenue base is 10 times larger than ours.
1: Thanks Bill for your call. Go ahead, Carmen. You know,
5: Bill Bill's absolutely right. I mean, the you know, economies of scale explain a heck of a lot, but you know, if you look at, for example, Rogers' most recent quarterly results, which were just made public this morning, uh, they're making money hand over fifth. Well, yeah. And yet, you know, the the state of their network, we're starting to get a better look into how much of those profits they reinvest in building up their infrastructure to to bury those wires and deliver that service to individuals to build out their national wireless network to make sure that it's robust and secure and that there's a whole lot of backup built into it. It's pretty clear that the 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 pantry is there. They haven't been reinvesting internally, and a lot of those profits are going somewhere else. And so, you know, yes, the 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 scenario, the context is is more agreeable to a telecommunications company in the U. S. But here in Canada, that only explains so much why aren't they reinvesting more and why are we so behind the curve north of the border considering the fact that we invented yeah. most of these technologies that the world now takes for granted
1: carmi i am short on time but i have to get this in we've seen some mixed reaction to roger's estimates that it expects to issue about 150 million in rebates to customers um i have yet to receive mine by the way but understand it's coming in august apparently we'll see still is 150 million enough 30 seconds
5: it's an absolute drop in the bucket they're so focused on reimbursing subscribers for what it costs them to have that service not available on that day. They miss the the actual damages caused by the lack of that service. This should not just be a, we'll refund you a few days, in this mm-hmm. case five, uh, of service. Let's understand and let's have government uh, the government weigh in with legislation that forces telecoms to pay for not just subscription fees that weren't delivered, um, but also the damages that were caused to businesses, to individuals, to emergency services, because those services weren't available. $150 million is just the start. That number should be way bigger.
1: Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it, Marissa. Thanks. And that's it for me today. I will be back tomorrow and on Friday, and Libby's back on Monday. Thanks for being with us.